0: on a Sunday morning service. If you're here locally, come on out. We want to meet you and connect with you, worship with you. We'd really enjoy that. But without further ado, let's jump into this message from Pastor Roger.
1: One more time. Let's give it up for all the dads. You guys are amazing, and you know it. So, hey, so we are, um, we, there's a couple announcements in there. I just want to circle back around just to make sure you heard them. One is that just for the summer, for July and August, we're going to go to two services. So we'll be back at our uh, our, our times that we used to do. So eleven fifteen or 9.30 and 11.15, that begins the first week of July, and the last week of August, that'll end. You'll hear announcements about that when we get closer. The second thing I want to say is this, is that, on Tuesday, this Tuesday at 6.30, we have an all-team uh, rally here at the church, and this is for anybody that serves on the team here. You're more than welcome to be a part of it, and I actually want to extend the invitation. If, if you're not on the team yet, but you really want to be a part of, of what's going on here at Celebration Church, come on out, uh, 6.30 on Tuesday. We would love to have you come out, and it's just going to be a fun, 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 fun time. Uh, we, we have uh, prizes, excuse me, prizes, I'm going to cry about it. Uh, prizes and all kinds of fun things, so it's going to be good. <clears throat> all right, so we're in the middle of a collection of messages around here. We 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 kind of teach or preach in uh, groups of thought. So these we call them a series or a collection. They're um, they're they're messages that are all kind of in the same area. They might be like a book of the Bible. They might be a biblical character or a group of biblical characters. Could be topics from the Bible. And today what we're in is we're in the middle of a series of messages on. The fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is this incredible thing that Paul teaches us. He uses Jesus' metaphor of us being part of the vine of God in John 15. And he expands on it in Galatians chapter 5. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. And depending on what your background is, that might mean different things to you. My background—I came from a, uh, I grew up in a very Pentecostal uh, church, and um, and and so for me, growing up, when I heard someone say something like "walk in the Spirit," what I'm hearing is uh, that means they're talking in tongues all the time. It means they're having words of prophecy for somebody, and they're laying on their hands on the sick, and the sick are recovering. Ah, like that's that's that was my my mind frame, and I'm not saying uh, it's not those things. I certainly believe in. All of those things. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit here. But when Paul is talking about walking in the Spirit, he's not talking about some sort of like hyper-spiritual person that is like looking for secret meanings behind everything. In fact, he clarifies exactly what he's talking about. He says it in a couple of verses later. He says it like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or like patience. Kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many know you can't fake self-control? And uh, against such things, there is no law. And so for the Apostle Paul, when he's saying walk in the Spirit, he does not mean uh, have beady eyes, you know, looking for the person to pray for in Fred Meyer. Although, maybe without the beady eyes, that's a great thing to do. What he is saying is this, is that your faith life, once you've placed your faith in Jesus, it's like a garden, and your life should produce healthy fruit. And there are different types of fruit. You can't have just one. You need all of these in your life. And it's really the evidence of a life that's truly being changed by Jesus. I've met people that really lean into the gifts of the Spirit. Again, I believe in the gifts of Spirit but i've met people that have really leaned into those things but they don't have love and joy and peace and patience and i'm just saying like a healthy mature believer is not marked on by uh, they're, they're not marked by uh, their ability to have prophecy or 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 to have a word of wisdom they're marked by a maturity that looks like a fruit so paul tells us this is what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, to be the kind of person whose life is transformed. So we don't just get saved and that's it. We get saved and then we grow into the kind of people. And by, he says it like this. There's no law against these things. Like, like a, a believer should be somebody that is at peace with all people. So today I'm actually talking about the fruit peace. We, we spoke about love. We spoke about joy. Today we're talking about Peace. And how many know us dads need some peace? <clears throat> so um, we're, we're going to be talking uh, uh, about this, this fruit called peace from from a, just a unique passage that um, I've never really, um, I've never approached peace in this way, but I, I think it, it really, for me, it, it means a lot to me. Um, has anybody ever felt like you had it all together? Like Like, have you ever felt like you just had... The situation under control. Uh, perhaps for you, it was a test that you took, and, you, and you, you just aced that test. Or maybe for you, it was an interview, and you just had that under, you just, you just crushed the interview. You walked out just confident, knowing you did, or maybe you wrote a budget for your family, and like at the end of the month, like not only were you not in the red, but like you were, you were in the black a little bit. Like you're like, I crushed, anybody ever feel like you, you had it under control? Okay, I got nobody. All right, I got two or three people. Okay, let me say it like this. Anybody anybody ever feel like you don't have it under control? (laughs) There there we go. We got some honest people in the house. How many people have ever felt like in the exact same 24-hour period of time that you had it under control and you didn't have it under control? (laughs) That's called parenting. And um, (laughs) so that's that's really a very common thing because the, the truth is, Inside of all of us, there is like a smidge of control freak. All of us have a little bit of a control freak inside of us. And, um, and you might say today, like, no, not me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a real controlling person. I'm laissez-faire. I'm just, you know, I just kind of go with things. But the truth is this. There are probably areas of your life that if I was to really kind of get in there and touch that area of your life, you'd be like, yeah, that's actually an area I really care about. It has to be under control and so we've got people that uh, that are under the illusion that they are actually in control of what goes on in their lives and then there are other people that have just sort of stopped trying to control their life and then stop trying stopping trying to control your life what you're really doing is trying to control things by reducing expectations you're really trying to control the whole situation as well right like you can't expect anything out of me that's called control that's that's also control we we really struggle with this and and the deal is this is that a peaceful life does not come from working harder to control things in your life. And a peaceful life does not come from abdicating responsibility in your life, pretending like you don't need to be in control. Because again, that is also control. When you say, like I'm, good. I'm not accountable to anyone, That's, that's con- you're controlling things. But that doesn't create a peaceful life. Controlling it or letting it go does not create peace. A peaceful life. And, and when we talk about a, the biblical idea of peace, um, I, I think sometimes we just get it wrong. Because in our minds, we especially as dads, right? Like as a dad, we, we, we really, at some point as a dad, we, we realize like we may have had a dream job we always wanted to live. I just want to pursue my passions. But at some point we realize like that's, a, that's cute it's cute, but at the end of the day, a mature vision of life says, my passion is my family, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to take care of them and to secure them. So we spend all of our lives trying to provide and trying to re- remove difficulty and uh, any obstruction from our kids, and we become a hover parents, and we do all that to try to make our kids' lives as peaceful as possible. The problem is, the biblical idea of peace is not the same as the English word peace. So here's a comparison between the Hebrew word shalom, that we transfer, translate peace, and the English word peace. Peace in English means an absence of conflict, it means that there's no more struggle. In Hebrew, the word shalom means that it, it means to be complete. To be lacking nothing. And this isn't necessarily an external thing. This is an internal sense of being complete, of lacking nothing. I, I'm good. I may not have everything someone else has, but I'm complete. I'm, I'm at peace in spite of there could be conflict. Peace in English is easily lost. How many times in the Middle East have we, have we had peace talks? And then all it takes is one radical on either side to do something stupid and peace is lost. Have you ever had children that you, you're just trying to get them to stop fighting? They're in the back seat of the car, and you're, you're like, "Just stop fighting! Just stop fighting!" Like, okay, we're playing the silent game. We're we're gonna we're gonna go home and playing the silent game, and then it's just like one of them one of them says something, and it just erupts in the back, right? Because peace is easily lost when we're talking about the English idea of peace being no conflict. In Hebrew, the idea means it, it's it's this long-lasting thing because it's not based on whether or not we face difficulty. Peace in English is based on circumstances around us. It means that the world is good. Peace in shalom, it's like it's a dove that rests even when you're in a flood. Even when you're in difficulty, peace is still available. Peace in English is really, it's like a natural emotion. And it's a good, it's a good feeling that we should have. We should feel this sense of peace. But the biblical idea of peace is much more than a sense that everybody's getting along. It's a spiritual posture towards God that says, no matter what happens around me, I am at peace with God and the world. Peace in English, it comes from a feeling. Shalom comes from faith. And there's one character in scripture that I think we we often look at through a different lens. But there is... Peace being taught through this person's life. This is the oldest book of the Bible that we have. It's from a man named Job. And many of you, when you were reading the Bible, you skipped this one because you thought it said job. And he's like, I already have one of those. But this guy named Job is a great example of what peace looks like. It's in Job chapter 1, verse 1. It says, There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. (laughs) It's a funny name. He was blameless. Everybody say, he was blameless. A man of complete integrity. Say, complete integrity. So no one one could point a finger at this guy. Nobody nobody would accuse him of anything. He had integrity. And I just want to say, like, it's a good thing to be blameless and have integrity. Like I I honestly think one of one of the greatest messages we can bring, especially to the business people in our churches, let's restore integrity in the business marketplace. Like, like parents in this house, dads in this house, let's let's restore being blameless in our homes. And so He's he's completely blameless, and then the Bible tells us a little bit more about this man. It says, he feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. In fact... He was the richest person in the entire area. And so when we read this, we're thinking, like, why is it telling us about this guy's livestock? That's really weird. Like, it's telling us about his pets. That's really strange. And the, and the reason is because it's trying to demonstrate that he is a very wealthy person. This is why it says his the number of Female donkeys he has. That means he's a donkey breeder. He's not somebody that owns donkeys, he's breeding donkeys. He's he's somebody that has a lot of wealth. And and so in in ancient cultures and even in many cultures that are not Western today, your value is not based on the kind of house you live in, the type of car you drive, or the or the number in your bank account. Your value is based on how many children you have and how many or how much livestock you own. We see this thing happening in Ethiopia right now. So Ethiopia is currently in the worst drought they've been in in recorded history. So Ethiopia has been tracking temperatures and water levels for 150 years, and this in 150 years of recorded uh, uh, history is the worst drought they've ever been in. The last time there was a drought of this magnitude, 250,000 people died of starvation. And this is worst. And what's so crazy about what's going on in the drought in Ethiopia right now is that there is, there is so little water that families are losing their livestock. So if they had a small herd of 20 or 30 goats, those goats are dying. And, and to us... That's not a big deal because we're like, they're just goats. But to them, it's completely different. To them, a a small herd of 20 or 30 goats is generational wealth because those goats have been bred by their family for generations. And so losing those goats means losing absolutely everything they have. And so they're trying to figure out what life looks like outside of an agricultural world. It's really, it's devastating to the country right now. And so that's what this guy, Job, was like. Maybe that didn't make any sense to you. Let me, let me put, I'll do a different translation. So it says it this way. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 shares of Apple, 3,000 shares of Amazon, 500 gas stations, an assortment of cars, trucks, boats, and small airplanes. He also had many employees to manage it all. Not in the Bible, right? <laughs> This is Job. He's, he's very wealthy. The most wealthy man in the region. If he was in Idaho, his last name would, would rhyme with Lot, right? Like, or, or Ot. And, and so this guy has lots of stuff. What's really unique about this guy, Job, is, is, he is he is devoted to God and he's wealthy. He's both. Because there are people that are rich but not devoted to God, and there are people that are devoted to God and not rich, which means following Jesus does not make you wealthy. just want to make that clear. But Job is a unique case because he is both wealthy and devoted to God. He's a generous man. He took care of the people around him. He he was a person that lived a life that all of us would love. Until tragedy strikes. What happens is that his oxen and his donkeys are stolen and his sheep are struck by lightning and his camels are stolen. And Job doesn't have Jake from State Farm to call and just replace it all. So everything that he's lived his life for, for all his family's wealth for generations is gone in a moment tragedy has struck. And and then it goes further because the Bible tells us his children are having a dinner party and a servant comes running from the dinner party. And this is what the servant says. He says, suddenly that a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and it hit the house on all the sides and the house collapsed and all your children are dead and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job is experiencing this incredible moment because he had spent his entire life securing peace, his entire life making sure all those he loved would be without a care, his entire life making sure they were all taken care of, had everything they needed, all the resources, all the education, making sure they were all taken care of. And in one moment, all of that comes to an end. When I was a youth pastor in Alaska. There was this family that had been coming to the church for a few years, and they had, uh, I believe, five daughters, and four of them were in the youth ministry. And um, and so we did a lot. We go on trips, and we spent a lot of time with this family. One of the daughters was about to be uh, youth age, and I got a phone call that said, uh, "You need to meet us at the emergency room. You need to you need to go there." It was from my pastor, and he was he was headed to the emergency room, and so I, I joined him at the hospital. We went to the emergency area and when we got there, we discovered that this family had been they'd been uh, T-boned. They were in a minivan and they'd been hit by a car that was doing uh, 55 miles an hour. And when it hit them, it it, it devastated the family. I remember walking into that emergency ward. I'd been to emergency rooms before to pray with people and just to be there and try to stay out of the emergency worker's hair but also be there for the family and and I'd done that before, but, I, but never before had, had I walked into an emergency room and then had seven separate rooms that I was going from room to room, just praying and caring for an entire family. There was, there was more blood than you would have wanted to see. There was more brokenness than I would have liked to have seen. One of the girls, um, at that point, it looked like she'd never walk again. It was just it was terrible. And I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't have words. You know, sometimes you don't have to have words. All I knew is I'm just going to sit here and just be with them, and I'm going to pray with them. I'm just going to sit. And I I was sitting with with the dad who who got the the least of it. He He was the most okay. And I remember looking at this dad who had worked his entire life to secure a life for his kids, to make sure that they had no wants, to make sure they had no needs, to make sure they had their friends, to make sure they had the school, And I looked at this dad, and I remember seeing just an absolute powerlessness in his eyes. Just a devastation because there was nothing he could do to change the situation. He was powerless. Can I tell you today that life is rarely controllable? And a peaceful life does not come from protecting myself or the people I love from something bad happening to them. Life is rarely controllable, but I am always responsible. And as I say that, you're probably thinking two things. Number one, that's a really messed up thing to say that I'm responsible when life is uncontrollable. And secondly, you don't know how to spell. Well, it's the same answer for both things. I'm not saying you are responsible like the weight of the issue is on your shoulders, but I am saying life is not controllable, but you always have an ability to respond. And that is an empowering thing to know that how I respond to the uncontrollable world we live in will dictate whether or not I receive peace in my life. Life is rarely controllable, but I'm always response-able. Job's response is is quite telling to how he responded when, when experiencing the loss it says it like this in verse 20, that Job stood up and he tore his robe in grief, and then he shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And to us, that, that, that just seems weird, like why would you stop and shave your head? Why would you shave your head? What he's doing is he's, he's in a very he, he just expressive culture. So what he's doing is he's, he's showing how desperate he feels inside by ripping things of value. And he's, he's shaving his head because he's saying, I am shameful. I'm, I've lost everything in my life. But then he falls to the ground. He's expressing his grief, expressing his emotion. And then he falls to the ground and worships. And then it says, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. I think this is a powerful thing to stop on for a second, is that Job, even though he was a man that was close to God, even though he was a man that was blameless in every way, he experienced massive levels of grief, and he expressed his pain. He expressed his emotion. And I think sometimes we get it wrong because we think Peace means I can't show someone how upset I am by this situation. Peace means I've got to act strong and in control. And here Job is saying I am out of control in every area of my life, and I'm grieving inside. I'm just saying a healthy believer is also someone who knows how to access those emotions and handle them well. We don't hide them. We don't. We don't stuff them down. We. Handle them well because you will go through seasons of life that are overwhelming. And God has given you emotions as a way to deal with those circumstances. And that's what Job is doing because life for him had become uncontrollable. But we are response able. I think about um, even... All of us that are in the room today, it was March 2020, and right now somebody's like, oh, he's going to talk about COVID. Oh, great. But think about it. In March 2020, probably none of us in the room knew anybody that had ever been sick with COVID. And we were running to Ridley's to get the last remnants of toilet paper, except for us, because we had a bidet, a toilet seat bidet, which was amazing. You should have thought of that. But March 2020, it was, it was this moment. It was just like, what's going to happen? Nobody knows anybody that has had COVID yet. Nobody nobody really knows. I mean, there's very little people that know about what's going on. And I remember watching this YouTube video of, um, of how pandemics work. It was just somebody explaining like how this thing works. That yes, right now you don't know anybody that's had it. And you don't know anybody that's died from it and, 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 and all of this. But as this thing progresses, everyone is going to get sick. Everyone's going to experience it. And and more than likely, by the time it's progressed, everyone will at least know somebody who has passed away from it. And in March 2020, that seemed a little foreign and a little distant. But as our church family and as the people I knew, as my own family walked through the, the next coming years, we discovered it was so true, wasn't it? That every one of us did experience sickness. And, and I would say that the vast majority of people in this room either know someone that they work with, or maybe they know a loved one that they love dearly that passed. And with that amount of tragedy in our world all at once, there's a lot of questions coming like, how do I deal with this? How, how do I manage? Like, like why would this happen? Like, all these questions. And, and here was just something I came to, and it just, just, like, what sat with me. And it's just, there are not easy answers for this sort of a thing. There's not easy answers. But what I really came to grips with was this idea that there are two types of faith in the middle of these situations. Two types. There's a for faith, and there's an in faith. For faith means I have faith in God for something. I have faith that God's going to heal my grandma. I have faith in God that He's going to help my family through this difficult season. I have faith for God that He or faith for uh, for God to to help my daughter through this this season of, of depression. Like I have faith for God to do something, but the other type of faith is a faith in God, not for God to do something, but just a faith in God because sometimes the for the, the faith for something to happen doesn't happen the way you're believing it's going to happen and at the end of the day one of the great benefits of being a believer is that when we have faith in Jesus we can now have faith for things to happen But even when they don't happen, we have this incredible box called in faith. This incredible box we can say, I have faith in God, whether he answered my prayer or not, whether things turned out favorably or not. I have faith in God in these kind of seasons. And that's where Job finds himself. I've got faith in God, even though everything has gone crazy. And that's where peace is found, is a faith in God. A place where unmet expectations can be held. In just a simple trust, God knows what he's doing. So life is rarely controllable. We are always responsible. It isn't that Job is unmoved, that he's calloused, that he's he's stoic and just doesn't show emotion. What it is, is Job has a peace that goes beyond the circumstances he's in. And I'm telling you today, you can experience the same sort of peace that goes beyond where your marriage is today, beyond where your finances are today, beyond where your hopes and dreams are today, a peace that goes beyond. Because peace is not a prayer we pray. Peace is a principle we live. People tell me, Pastor, would you just pray that I have peace? And I can pray that you have peace, but the Bible has already given you instructions on how to have peace. Isaiah chapter uh, 26 verse 3 says it like this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. If you, if you want peace in your life, it doesn't, it's not that you pray harder. It's not that you fast. It's not that you read your Bible more. What it is is you say, I'm going to keep God on my mind. It's about keeping your mind focused on God and trusting him. And when we trust him, he brings us to a place called perfect peace. So the difficulty of peace is that life is uncontrollable and often we feel powerless because we can't control the outcomes of life. But there's another truth. Yes, you are powerless to control all outcomes, but you are also very powerful because you are able to respond to all outcomes. You're able to respond to all situations. You are responsible. You are somebody who can respond. And so yes, you're powerless to be able to determine outcomes, but you are powerful through God because you have faith in God. And so now you can respond to your situations with the peace that says, I'm going to keep my mind fixed on him and my trust held in him and I know that he's the author and the finisher and that he will take care of me even when it doesn't seem good. Peace is a powerful place of setting our mind on God. But the problem is this, is we're still convinced that peace looks like nothing wrong in the world around us. So we keep rolling up our sleeves to stop all the problems and we become deluded thinking that we will control every issue of life. Or perhaps instead of trying to control all the issues of life, what you do is you abdicate or you walk away from all the issues of life. And really what that looks like is a defeat. And I'm here to tell you that if your mind is fixed on Christ and you trust him, he will give you a perfect peace that goes beyond understanding. But pastor, you don't know, like, like I appreciate what you're saying, but I'm new to this Christianity thing. I'm, I'm just kind of kicking the tires right now. And and that's, if that's you, just for you, so you know, like, kick the tires, please do. Poke, ask questions. But I'm kicking the tires right now. And 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 I've always just been able to kind of bounce back from things. Like, yeah, life gets hard, but I I always manage. Like, I always bounce back. And my response to you, like, uh, as loving as possible is this. Like, I understand what you're saying. I hear you. But for me, when I'm going through it and I turn towards myself to bounce back, I just find that I am a very shallow well to drink from and i need something deeper than me to hold me through i need god to be the one to hold me and so job's life doesn't get any better he's got this posture that says i'm just going to i'm going to worship god in the middle of it but his life doesn't get any better in fact he becomes sick and he gets like the world the world's worst man cold like he has boils all over his body, and he's taking pieces of clay, and he's scratching, and it's just, it's really gross. But his wife is probably like my wife whenever I'm sick. She doesn't believe I'm actually sick because Job's wife says, Job, just curse God and die. She's like, get up and make your own tea and, and chicken noodle s- soup. Like, you, do, your, do it yourself. And Job, Job's life has gone down the tubes. My wife is very kind just... She just knows that I exaggerate when I get sick. You have to. And in this moment of life taking an even worse turn, we see chapter two, that something interesting happens in Job's life. It says, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. These are good friends. And their names were Elispa, the Timanite and the shortest man in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Neamitite. And when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. You're gonna make a great dad, Jordan, with all your all your dad jokes. He told me that between services. <clears throat> And uh, they, they scarcely recognized him, and wailing loudly, they tore their robes, and they threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights, and no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I've read the book of Job. I understand that his friends don't get it right that his friends give bad information and and also Job himself doesn't get it right but can I just say this for a minute none of us ever get it right like in the book of Job, they don't get it right, and the book sort of ends. It has this bookend of God being like, "Okay, I'm tired of all this. Let me let me like straighten all of you out. Let me let me correct all of your wrong beliefs about me. I'm gonna and I'm just saying like I I, I have God do that to me quite often. Anybody ever have God like correct some some like he's you're not getting it right right? Like God does that to me about three times a day. Like. <laughs> Two of them are while I'm driving. He's like, whoa, you need to get your attitude under check, buddy. Like, <laughs> you need to get your heart right. I'm not, and so Job's friends and Job, they, like, Job gets real complainy and Job's friends start pointing fingers at him. And it, it's just like this thing. And God has to correct it. But, but like, to take, take for, the sec, for a second the, the idea that they're humans. They're struggling to make sense of a difficult situation. But they still do, like if show, they show up and they don't say anything to Job for seven days. If they'd not said anything for another seven days, it would have been great. But even though they, their advice was not perfect, it shows us that Job had prepared his life for tragedy because when life was good, Job had established some friendships the kind of friends that when life went crazy for Job and and he no longer had the possessions and he no longer had the family and he no longer had the status, they were still standing by him. Like I'm just saying like so many of us go through life worried so much about achieving an accomplishment and we've never taken time to build a foundation with the kind of people that will stand by us during difficult times. They're the kinds that show up for a week and don't say a word. When tragedy struck in Job's life, Job had already accomplished something that brings peace to our lives. He had already established that he is a God he will worship. He has a few friends he can count on. And he has a purpose that's bigger than all of this. I'm just telling somebody today that, like, tragedy will strike your life, that you you will experience difficulty, that there will be ups and downs in the economy, and that inflation has always gone up and always come down. It's always going to be unsteady, but it's, it's wise. It is a good thing to say, I'm going to build a foundation that's ready, a foundation built on a rock, like a, a God I'm going to choose to worship, and friends I'm going to build around me. I'm going to take time to invest in friends. And I'm going to find my purpose in life because that's like a really good recipe for life. It's a great recipe for life. I'm going to find a real relationship with the God I can worship no matter what. And I'm going to find just a handful of friends that, that I can rely on no matter what. And I'm going to find the purpose in my life that I can lean into no matter what. And dads, this is where we're not so good. Because it's really hard to make friends. It was easy in junior high to make friends. You ask ask a woman who her friends are, and this is a big stereotype, but typically it's going to be like whoever she hung out with. Like, who's your best friend? It's going to be who she hung out with that weekend. Stereotype. I get it. But you ask a man who his friends are, he's going to name some kid that he played football with 25 years ago and hasn't seen since then. That's not a friend. That's That's an old acquaintance, an old friend. Guys, it is hard to build friendships when we're established in our lives. But can I say that the most neglected spiritual discipline among fathers in the church is the spiritual discipline of making friends? You've got to put yourself out there to be around other people. And men, we... we We'll think sometimes, like, oh, I'm going to make friends. I'm going to go get coffee with somebody. That's great. But men don't bond over coffee. Men bond over shared activity. So if you want to build friendships with somebody, you can have the conversations over coffee, but the bond won't build. The bond builds when you have shared activity together. That's a great recipe for life. A God I can worship no matter what. Friends that I can count on. Not a lot. I don't need a dozen friends. I just need a couple friends that I can rely on and a purpose that I can lean into. You may say, well, that's great, Pastor, but I I, I don't think I really need all those things because life's pretty good, and, and that's the point of my message is that life may be good right now, but I promise you at some point the other foot's going to drop and you're going to want a God that you can worship no matter what and friends you can rely on no matter what and a purpose that you can lean into no matter what. And what's so incredible about this book of Job, we're in chapter 2. For the next 40 chapters, Job and his friends are are contemplating all the whys and what's and how's and wins of, of why all of this happened. And God never gives an answer. But God does restore Job. But there's a specific catalyst that kicks Job's transformation off. It's this. His friends had given him advice that was probably quite hurtful. His friends had said things about God that weren't true. His friends said things about him that wasn't true. And in chapter 42 of Job, verse 10, it says this. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Nothing could make up for what Job Had gone through, but the real catalyst for change in Job's life was when he got his heart right towards God and his heart right towards his friends. I'm just telling somebody today that you may be going through the most difficult season of your life, but you can have a peace that doesn't come by making sure everything is perfect. It comes when our heart is set on God, and we say, I'm going to get my heart right with God, and I'm going to get my heart right with the people around me, and we can experience a peace of God that surpasses understanding. As the band would come right now, it's in this moment that Job prays for his friends that he discovers the real source of his wealth. He, his wealth wasn't in his camels. It wasn't in the, the, the 7,000 sheep. It, it, it wasn't in the 500 gas stations or the apple stocks. Like, his wealth was in the fact that he had a God he could pray to no matter what. And he had friends he could pray for no matter what. And he had a purpose he could live into no matter what. Because life is rarely controllable, but we are always responsible. So, what do you do when life becomes hard? Because I know for me, I've been through seasons where it was good. In seasons where it wasn't fun, what do you do? You become angry, resentful. Do you get bitter, or do you choose to get better? Do you throw in the towel, or do you climb back into the ring? When you get bucked off the horse, do you walk out of the stall, or or do you crawl back onto that horse? Like, like because here's the problem that happens so often. Again, I'm speaking to everybody, but it's Father's Day. So let me just talk a little bit about dads. Because we had hoped somebody was going to be a good friend. We had, we had hopes and expectations for something. And it wasn't met. Because we have those unmet expectations. Or maybe you trusted somebody and they betrayed your trust. Or maybe for you, you loved somebody, but they didn't love you back. Maybe for you, you went into business with somebody and They thought they would be better off on their own. And what happens is this. When that happens, we say, you know what? I don't need the friend piece. I don't need the God piece. I don't need the purpose piece. I'm safest when I isolate myself. I'm safest when I create a barrier that keeps everybody else at arm's distance because I'm never gonna be betrayed again. I'm never gonna get hurt again. I'm never gonna be last again. And when we do that, when we isolate ourselves and we push other people out of our world, we become critical, we become jaded, we become burned, we become beaten down and it's just not fair and it's not what God designed you to live out. So don't keep people at the fringes. Don't keep God on the edges. Instead, pull him in. Pull friends and make yourself available to other people because God has a plan and he has a purpose for your life. But pastor, you, you don't understand. I just The friends piece is just so hard. And I, I get that it's hard. I'm a man too. I struggle making friends. But the Bible's very clear. For a man to find friends, he must be friendly. And I know, that's really deep. That's some deep word of God. But your family needs you to find friends. Your wife needs you to find friends. Your kids need you to have friends you can count on. Pastor, you don't. Like you talk about this purpose piece that I need a purpose beyond myself. No, I don't. I just need to just do the, the clock at work every. I do this motion because I lived. I, I grew up in the day when you had an actual card you would punch, and some of you're like, "What is this? What is this?" We had like paper that they would punch. That was a, the time card. And you say, "I don't need that kind. Of, I don't need a purpose. I just need to eat, sleep, watch TV." Go to work. That's all I need to do. No, you need purpose in your life. You, you need to understand that everyone who God has called, he's called to a purpose. And you say, but I don't know if I want to do that. I, don't, I just don't want to get burnt out. Like, I don't, I don't want to get burnt out by, by pursuing purpose. i got all these other things going on. And, and I, I would say, like, I get that burnout is a thing. Like, I, it is a real thing. I get it. But I also think sometimes it's an excuse. Because I've heard people that are worried about burnout that have just never been on fire. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, I just don't want to burn out. No, you just need it. Maybe maybe like a little bit of pressure would be good for you. Like maybe stepping out of your comfort zone would be a good, healthy move for you. It's just go ahead and let yourself get lit on fire for some things in life. So my question to you, as you all stand, drinking in church, This is celebration church Real church, real people, we love them My question for you is this Have you built the kind of life That will prepare you To have peace In difficulty Have you built the kind of life that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I I have I have established a God I can worship no matter what. I have I have established friends that I can count on no matter what. And I've I, I know what my purpose is and I can lean into it no matter what. Have you done that? Because life is rarely controllable. We are always response able. I want to pray over everybody right now. God I pray right now for the people in this room that when I when I spoke about friendship, it stung because they desperately want friends. God, I pray that you would bring people of peace into their lives. People who would open their world to them. People that would believe in them. People that would be willing to, to do things for them and receive things from them. True friends. God, I pray that this church would be marked by friendships. Lord, your word says that people would know us by our love for each other. God, I just want to make that simpler. And I want to say that this church would be known by the kind of friendships it cultivates. God, I pray for those that are struggling with a purpose that can help them through difficult seasons. Lord, I pray that they would be fully persuaded you have called them not just to a salvation but you have called them to join you in transforming the world and I pray that as they recognize their role in that they would find you are not haphazard but you have a plan and a purpose God I pray for those right now that they already have faith in you but it's It's kind of good some days and bad other days. I pray right now that we would be the kind of people that find a time and a place where we commune with you. Give somebody the courage right now that today they get out their phone and the calendar and they would put you in as an appointment in the calendar. With every head still bowed and every eye still closed, I would ask this question. Maybe you're in the room today, and when I when I said this, a God I can pray to no matter what, or a God I can rely on no matter what, for you, you know that you're missing that part. That that's the missing ingredient in the recipe of your life is a real relationship with God. In fact, you would you would agree that you are not right with God. Right now, I wanna invite you to be set right with him, to be made right with God. If you're ready right now to say, I I wanna be right with God, I wanna be in a good standing with God, would you put your hand up so I can see where you're at? Come on, I see that hand. I see that hand. I wanna be made right with God. Good. I see that hand listen this is as simple as it is we are going to repent and we are going to believe repent means we turn away from the things in our life that we think do and say that we know don't please God we're going to believe in the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and when we do this his blood cleanses us from all sin he puts us in a good relationship with God So if you raised your hand, I want you to pray a prayer similar to this in your own words. Something like this. God, I'm sorry for the things in my life that I know don't please you. I want my life to please you. I'm turning away from those things right now. And God, I'm turning towards you. Would you forgive me? I believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day. And right now, I'm placing all of my faith and all of my hope in him. Say these words with me. Jesus, be the Lord of my life, and I will follow you every day that I live. Come on, church family. There's some people that just made a stand, that just put a stake in the ground, a moment of transformation and change. Come on. Let's worship the Lord together. Happy Father's Day.
0: Hey, I just want to say thank you again for tuning in to today's podcast. If you want to learn more about Celebration Church, I'd encourage you to go to our website, www.thecelebration.church, to find out more. Well, we love you guys, and let's continue to love God, love people, and change the world.